1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labour and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Here ends the epistle. Good morning, everyone. Please have a seat and uh, pick up a Bible. As Jonathan said, we're continuing our series, Waiting for Jesus, in 1 Thessalonians, and we come this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So please turn back to page 986, and we're going to be looking at that together. So it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, page 986. Let me pray for us. Father God, speak to us and work in us as we read your word together now. By your spirit, help us to accept and receive these words as your word and deepen our conviction that your gospel is true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's the real thing. It really is. The message about Jesus as Savior and Lord is the real thing. As that reading from John's gospel said, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. And that truth means that every area of our life is affected. However many days or years we have left on this earth should be transformed because Jesus came from heaven, because he died on a cross to save us, because he rose from the dead, and because he will one day come again. Jesus makes all the difference. Watch this short video. I think everyone in life 
is trying to make it through. And Jesus helps me to make it through. My Lord is the one who gives me hope for the future, purpose for living now. In life we face a lot of challenges, but being present with Jesus gives me that. Everyone in life is trying to make it through. And Jesus helps me to make it through. My Lord is the one who gives me hope for the future, purpose for living now. In life we face a lot of challenges, but being present with Jesus gives me that confidence to keep going. As a barrister, Jesus gives me peace in, in literally every situation. Jesus is, is always there and he offers me forgiveness and life and life in, in abundance. Jesus has made an incredible difference to me. He's given back my self-esteem. I look back at the key moments of joy in my life and also the key moments of hard times in my life and Jesus has been my everything uh, through, through all of that. I can never be lonely because he's with me all the time. So it's an ongoing, living, intimate friendship. There's guidance for every day, there's peace, there's comfort. Uh, so it's a very real dynamic friendship. I discover a peace no matter what I go through in life, but also I discover my purpose, who I am and what I'm here on earth for. I've got a hope for now, but also for all of eternity. He's my friend. He's always there for me. He's the one that I can be the most vulnerable with and myself with every day. And so actually I've given my life to, to share in that story. The message about Jesus as Saviour and Lord is the real thing, and it makes all the difference. The first readers of the first book of Thessalonians needed to be absolutely sure of that, and we do too. If you glance back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, we see that they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So they no longer worshipped man-made idols, false gods. Now they serve the one true living God, the only real God. How did that happen? Quick bit of recap. Perhaps you weren't here a couple of weeks ago. Perhaps two weeks ago was a long time. But let's remember what happened to the Thessalonians. Acts 17 tells us the story of how the church was planted by a powerful work of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of God's word. Paul and his team were there for just a few weeks. After just three weekends, where we read they reasoned with them from the scriptures in the synagogue and taught them that Jesus was the Christ, we read in Acts 17 verse 4 that some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Now these young believers very quickly faced severe opposition from the Jews and the city authorities. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy had to run away in order to protect them. It must have been really hard for them to leave those young Christians who they loved so much so soon, and especially hard to see them facing so much persecution for their faith. And so after a few months, they sent Timothy back to see how they were doing. And Timothy discovered that not only had they survived, but they were thriving and they were strong in their faith. Timothy then took that news back to the others, and Paul and the rest of them sent a letter back 
And this is the letter that we're reading together at the moment. Now, back to those Thessalonians, what might stop them being sure that the God that they now worshipped was real? For one thing, the suffering they faced might have unsettled them. But it also seemed that some were trying to convince them that Paul was a fake. His motives were dodgy, he was a fraud, and his message is made up. You might think he was your friend, they said, but Paul didn't really love you. And in that context, Paul wants them to know that what had happened to them was from God. They hadn't got it all wrong. The message about Jesus was true. So in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 2, Paul speaks about himself and his friends who'd come with him. He reminds them what his visit was like. Over and over again, you see, you know, or you remember. And those phrases, you know, you remember, appear over and over again. Now, what Paul's doing here is not vain. He's not wanting to boast. He's reminding them of his visit because he wants them to know that the message that he brought them was true. Let's look at what he says together, starting at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul and his team weren't in Thessalonica by accident. They weren't tourists, although it is a beautiful part of the world. They were there because they wanted to bring that message about Jesus to them. Paul and his team didn't just bump into those who became Christians at Thessalonica. They had intentionally, deliberately gone out of their way to tell them about the good news of Jesus. And that hadn't made their life easy. Before he was with them, Paul had suffered in Philippi. And when he was with them, he had suffered again. And what was it that kept Paul going? Why did he keep declaring the gospel of this true and living God? Well, he tells us that because God had helped him to speak boldly, despite the conflict, despite the persecution, God was behind all of this. This is God's gospel, and this is God's work. Let's read on in verse 3. For our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. His motive for preaching hadn't been driven by what he could get out of it. He didn't want money or popularity. And he hadn't been dishonest in his behavior. Look down the list. No impurity, no deception, no flattery, no trickery. He didn't try and use, abuse, or manipulate anyone. Instead, his motive for bringing them the message about Jesus... Sorry, what was his motive then for bringing the message about Jesus? Well, two things. Firstly, he was convinced that the God of the Bible was the true and living God, and that the gods of the world's human religions were false. It wasn't error that he was teaching. What convinced him of that truth was the resurrection of Jesus, a real event that happened in history and that showed that God had made his son the rightful Lord and judge over all. 
And the second thing that motivated him in bringing the message was that he was convinced that God had given him that job of telling others about the gospel. And so he was the one, Paul, uh, and Paul was convinced that God wanted him to tell others about the gospel, and God was the one Paul wanted to please and serve. And God knew what was in his heart. The language he uses conjures up the scene of standing in a courtroom and God himself being there as his witness. Let's read on verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, in other words, we loved you so much, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work day and night that we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Did Paul and his gang really love the Thessalonians? Yes. They had a message to deliver, but they weren't like a bored delivery man who drops off your parcel, grabs your signature, and dashes away as quick as he can. Paul loved them, and he really did care about them. And if he could, he would have stayed longer with them. And the way he describes how he behaved completely matches the message that they brought. They talked of a God who had given himself for them. And so Paul and co. did just that. They gave themselves for the sake of the Thessalonians. They came speaking of the gospel of free forgiveness. So they wanted to offer that message to them for free, which is why they worked so hard to offer the gospel free of charge. And they talked of a God who was holy and pure, and their own love was blameless. And they encouraged and comforted and urged the young Thessalonian believers themselves to live lives worthy of God. Now, I've kept us going through those verses quite quickly because I don't want us to miss his overall purpose. He is talking about his ministry team and their courage and their integrity and their love and their hard work, but actually that's not his focus. His purpose in all of this was to reassure them that the message that they had heard through him was true. Jesus had appointed him as an apostle with the task of preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus and with his authority. The message that had turned their lives upside down was real. They did not need to worry. And nor do we. This message brought by the apostles about Jesus as Savior and Lord has been written down for us in the New Testament. Our faith in Christ rests on their witness and teaching as well. And these words written give us confidence in the integrity of those who wrote the Bible. Which is just as well, because it is a message that changes the whole direction of your life. Well, now that the main purpose Paul had in mind when he wrote these verses is clear, we can also pause long enough to learn from their example. They're actually incredible verses describing authentic Christian ministry and are a wonderful model to copy for all Christians, not just church leaders and ministers. 
If you want to know how to serve effectively, this is where you turn. So here are a few questions that I think this passage asks of us. Firstly, are we being deliberate and intentional in sharing the gospel? There are those around us who will not get to hear the good news if we don't, in the power of the Spirit, intentionally step into their lives in order to share the gospel with them. So will you follow Paul's example, who in loving obedience crossed into other people's lives to tell them the wonderful, life-transforming news of Jesus and his death on the cross? Secondly, are you convinced that the gospel is true for all? All around us are those who believe in a different truth or in no truth at all. And we will only be motivated to tell them the gospel if we are convinced that Jesus really lived and died and rose again and that those events can only be explained by him being the rightful Lord and judge of all. You know, things that happen in history are true for everyone, whether they like it or not, whether they believe it or not. So on that morning when we woke up to discover that we had voted to exit the European Union, I have no idea what you thought, but whether or not you liked it, whether or not you thought, I can't believe it, is irrelevant. It really happened, and therefore the implications are true for everyone. And in a similar way, are we convinced that the gospel is true for all? Thirdly, do we have integrity to present the gospel to those around us? There should be no dodgy motives or selfish methods. For many years, I was involved in uh, a cafe called the Globe Cafe, reaching international students. And a few years ago, some Jehovah's Witnesses came along to the cafe wanting to meet some of the students that we were wanting to reach with the good news of Jesus. They invited them home for a meal. And uh, at the end of the meal, they said to them, why don't you come downstairs? We're going to do a Bible study. And uh, the students, understandably, were quite upset and uh, thought that it was us, our church, that had done it. Unfortunately, we were able to correct the mistake and say, look, we want you to read God's word. We want you to hear the true gospel. But we won't get you there under false pretenses. We won't pretend you're coming for a meal and then spring a Bible study on you. There's no room for dodgy methods or selfish motives as we present the good news of Jesus. Fourthly, do we want to please God more than we want to please people? When our conversation turns to spiritual things, we've got two options. Either please God by saying what he once said, or please men by hearing what they want to hear. And sometimes that will mean some hard conversations. They're hard because we want to please. We want to make the gospel acceptable. But the only way we can do that really is to change it, to soften it, to leave out things that we ought to say. We need to remember that God has given us the job of delivering his gospel message. Just like a king or a prime minister entrusts a message to an ambassador. And if you are that ambassador, you can't just say, do you know what, I don't think I'll say all of this. Because the people I'm giving the message to may not like it. When you're given a message as an ambassador, you have to say it. Even though you know that they may not like it. Even if you know that when they don't like it, you are the one that they'll react to. Now, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that every time an opportunity comes up to speak about Jesus, we have to say absolutely everything. But if there are some things that we never, ever speak about, if there are some things that we avoid for fear of what people might think, then we need to ask, do I want to please God more than I want to please people? 
And then lastly, do we both share the gospel and love people? In other words, does our life back up our message? We're not only to tell people the gospel, but we're to show the gospel in the way that we treat them. We need to do both, to love and to speak. I guess each of us will probably gravitate to one or the other. Perhaps some of us need to hear, share not only the gospel, but your life as well. Whereas others maybe need to hear, share not only your lives, but the gospel as well. But wherever we may naturally gravitate, we all need to share both the gospel and love people, following the example that we've been reading here today. And can I say, I think the work that we're beginning to do with CAP, Christians Against Poverty, is an obvious example of this. Loving others in the name of Christ and deliberately and intentionally seeking an opportunity to tell them the good news of Jesus. Loving people and sharing the gospel. Well, these verses are a model for us to follow. They show us what true messengers of Jesus look like. But as we go on to verses 13 to 16, we're brought back to that main idea of these verses, that the message about Jesus is true. God's word hadn't come to the Thessalonians through a voice speaking out of the sky. What had happened is that Paul and his friends had preached the gospel to them, and they had recognized God speaking. They'd recognized God calling them to repent and believe in Jesus. Look at verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the words of God, the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not with the word of men, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. How we treat the word of God has eternal significance. Will we treat them as the words of men, even good, wise men? Or will we treat them as the words of the true God, our maker and saviour. How we treat these words ends up being no different to how we treat the one whose words they are. The Thessalonians listened to the message delivered via Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they received and accepted them as coming from the mouth of God. Perhaps you, ex- you recognize that experience yourself. You read words in the Bible or you have the Bible explained and preached to you, and you know that it is God himself who is speaking to you. Yes, they're words written by men, but they're also words from God himself. Paul thanked God for this experience, and so should we. It was a sign that God was at work. Because it is God's word that God uses as he works in us. God's Spirit uses God's words to protect us, to challenge us, to encourage us. God's Word transforms our lives and our character. But that only happens as we read it, as we hear it taught, as we think about it, as we humbly submit to it in our lives, treating it not as the words of men, but as it really is, the Word of God. And that's why we need to keep the words of this book close to us. We need to read it on our own day by day. We need to join a group midweek and commit to coming along Sunday by Sunday. We need to choose to do these things, to listen to God's word. It's important to keep hearing and obeying God's word so that God's word can do God's work in our lives. 
And God was at work in the lives of the Thessalonians. All through this chapter, Paul has been reassuring these new Christians that their Christian experience was real. And he does that again in these final few verses. He reassures them that God is at work in them by pointing out that the way they are willing to suffer for sharing the gospel is evidence of God's spirit at work in them. Look at verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same thing from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. For the Thessalonians, receiving and accepting God's word led to suffering. That almost certainly will also be true for us, and it will also be true for all who follow in their footsteps. These verses emphasize that suffering for being a Christian is normal. Opposition to the gospel, and especially opposition from those close to home, is exactly what we should expect. The Thessalonians have been suffering. In this particular case, at the hands of the Jews... But he looks back over the past and he shows them how the suffering that they're going through is not unique. They're not the only ones. The Old Testament prophets and then Jesus and then the Judean church and now the Thessalonian church. All of them suffered persecution from their own people. And that remains the experience of many Christians today. Often it is those closest to us who cause us the most grief for being Christians our family, our friends, our work colleagues. And that can be very, very, very painful. And so Paul wanted them to know, as they were going through that, that what was happening to them was the normal Christian experience. They shouldn't be thrown off course by their suffering. In fact, their willingness to suffer was evidence that they had received the word of men as the word of God. And we too need to be willing to suffer for being a Christian and for sharing the gospel with those around us. I've been reading of the courage of the Egyptian Christians and their response to the bombing and murders that they faced this Easter period. In the face of such suffering, it takes courage to keep proclaiming the gospel. Courage that only God can give and courage that comes from knowing that that gospel is true. And these final few verses are not easy. They may seem harsh or or perhaps you wonder whether Paul is being anti-Jewish. Well, Just to remind you, Paul himself had a Jewish background, and he wrote elsewhere of his longing for his people, the Jewish people, to trust in Jesus. So it's not that he doesn't love the Jewish people. It's just that he knows that it's to stop the Christians talking about Jesus to those who don't know him in order that those people can be saved. He knows that there are those who do not want... Uh, there, there are people who don't want the Thessalonians doing, uh, don't want the Thessalonians to do what they have done, to accept the word of God and to turn to God from idols to serving the living and true God. And Paul knew that God had given him the task of taking the message of the gospel to the whole world, including those who weren't Jews. And that made him unpopular because the Jews saw the Gentiles as outsiders. But you see, Paul knew that the message about Jesus was for everyone. He knew that the only way that anyone could be saved was to trust and follow Jesus. 
And so Paul refused to give up on that task, and he wanted the Thessalonians to keep speaking to all those willing to listen without being scared of those who oppose the gospel. And he reminds us in these verses that Jesus is coming again. The Jesus who sees everything, and the Jesus who is not pleased with those who oppose the gospel. One day they will face his judgment for what they have done in opposing him and his work. They may seem powerful now, but one day their power will be gone. So Paul says, don't be scared of them. Instead, keep sharing your faith. Keep sharing your life and the gospel with all those around you. And pray for courage to keep going and to keep speaking about Jesus, even when it brings suffering into your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that wonderful gospel message. We thank you that Jesus came and he gave himself up for us on the cross. Father, help us to give ourselves in the same way. Thank you for Jesus' offer of free forgiveness. Help us to work hard to make known that offer of free salvation to all those around us. And thank you that you are a God who is holy and pure and blameless. And we pray that you would cause us to be honourable and blameless in the way that we relate to others. We ask this in Jesus' name.